All right, everybody, today on the Eternal Leadership Podcast, we hear, you know, there's so many of us that were on a interesting yet challenging path. I think, you know, in today, right, where there's so many things we're dealing with, the loss of our health, our finances, there's so much uncertainty in the world today. And I think a lot of us feel sometimes lost or rudderless and taking that next step almost feels like there's so many choices, yet none of them feel right for us. And I know I've been stuck there. And I got to tell you, recently, God has really led me personally to really dig into the 23rd Psalm as I've really worked hard to just, I think, reconnect to a level of trusting God for that next small step. Because the path that I've been on, as many of you guys know, has been, man, this incredible winding journey. And recently, I was introduced by a friend to Rebecca Contreras. And Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to be with you and your listeners. Well, me too. And I'm so excited. We just had like this incredible mind melt just talking about um, leadership and organizational development and influencing the military and how to have a kingdom impact. And we were getting all fired up. I'm like, you know what, we got to hit record. or We're going to run out of time. But let me share with you guys a little background, Rebecca, because This is somebody everybody here needs to know and plug into because you just wrote a book called Lost Girl. And the title is From the Hood to the White House to Millionaire Entrepreneur. You were born into poverty, um, drug addicted mother. You had a fight for survival from when you were just a little girl. Your mom leaves for the store, never comes home and you're on your own. Many of us have probably dealt with abandonment, uh, betrayal, neglect. And out of that place, which where a lot of people, we can let that define us, we can be a victim, that can be something that we let into our identity about maybe that's who I am, I'm the person that maybe deserves that. But out of that, you have not only forged a path that has led you to influence at the highest levels of government, but also you're running how many people in your company now 170? We have 120 person practice. Uh, 120 people in your company. Yeah. Amazing. And you're doing incredible things in this country. And man, I am so excited to hear your story, but also learn from you, Rebecca. But with that, I'd love for you to maybe bring us back and start with you and just kind of share us your, you know, the walk that you've taken. Well, thank you, John. It's again, so good to be with you. And I love what you're doing and love your passion for equipping and empowering and really inspiring leaders across the nation and the world uh, to do what they do. And so I, you know, I always tell people you can't look at Rebecca today (laughs) as an entrepreneur of a multi-million dollar company or successful wife of 31 years or grandmother or mother without really understanding Rebecca of yesterday. And, you know, I'm from El Paso, Texas. It's where I grew up, border town. And for those that know or live in border towns, you know the ills and the challenges that come with that. And I'm one of four children. And I actually tell the full, the first three chapters are dedicated to my early story in Lost Girl. And I'm one of four kids. And um, my mom was a Latina and uh, we all had different fathers. And I, my father was from Yugoslavia with a twin brother. My sister's father was black and my brother's father was Mexican. And I used to joke with my mom, you just need the Asian to complete the circle of diversity. 
<laughs> trying to keep it light. But, you know, in all honesty, growing up in a dysfunctional home, um, when you look at the word dysfunction in the dictionary, there should be a picture of me uh, plastered on there. It really did a number on my psyche and my emotions, my trauma. Talk about spiritual poverty, physical poverty, mental poverty, you know, poverty, emotional poverty in every sense of the word. And so, Although my mother tried very hard, she couldn't kick the drug addiction when we were young and again, tell the full story of abandonment. And, you know, she left us uh, when we were, I was five years old and my little sister was six months old in the crib and I said she was going to the grocery store and never came back. And so I was, we were living in our third project house in El Paso in one of the really high crime ridden areas there on the corner of where you cross to the Juarez Bridge. And really when I was abandoned as a little girl, it really affected me and deeply traumatized me. And my grandmother took us in, John, and, you know, she is my hero and um, she's in heaven now. And, but she raised us and. Was your dad around at that time or was it just your grandma? We never knew any of our fathers. All of us were fatherless and I didn't know who my father was. I knew that he was an owner of a club. My mom was a dancer at and I was the result of a one night stand. And so you talk about just understanding you have no purpose. When I first read, John, um, the scripture in the Old Testament that talks about in your mother's womb, I formed you. I knew who you were in your mother's womb. I was When I first learned that as an adult, I was like, I do have a purpose. And so, but as a child, as as a teenager, because of the tremendous trauma that I sustained, you know, I really grew up very angry and very bitter. My mom ended up coming back. Two years later, she surfaced. Um, She was almost dead and was her drug of choice was heroin. She ended up coming back and ripped us away from the only stable home we knew, which was my grandmother and moved us to Austin when I was about nine years old. So here I am, nine years old. We're living in Austin in abject poverty. I, I, you know, grew up in abject poverty with her on welfare her whole life. And my mom was a Christian at that point and, you know, trying to get her life on track. She had kicked the drugs. She had tried, you know, to really get her life straight. But John, she never dealt with the trauma of her own life and the trauma that she instilled in us. And she got plugged into a little church in East Austin back then in the hood and uh, started, you know, ministry right away. And I tell the full story in the book that I went from having a drug addict mom, absent mom to a minister mom, and there was no in between. (laughs) And so, you know, I always tell people. You also said she still hadn't learned how to deal with that. You talk about it as like this generational cycle of destruction. Is that fair? She almost like flipped the switch without really addressing some of the underlying issues. Right. So she was of the generation, John, that believed that everything was under the blood of Jesus. And all you need to do was get saved and don't bring my past, you know, to me, you know, that's forgiven. But she never sought counseling or help or really healing from the trauma and the own abuse she sustained. And so, you know, abuse people, abuse people, and they can, you know, certainly be in church every day and still have all that trauma. In her case, she struggled with a lot of mental illness. So I have severe mental illness in my family that I've gotten help for, by the way, so early on in my life. So as a result of growing up in that mess of dysfunction, no father figure, you know, mother that was really kind of checked out, I got into a lot of trouble, started using drugs at age 13 and just went out of control. Uh, You know, only thing expected for someone that didn't understand her purpose. And made some really poor choices, ended up pregnant at 17, dropped out of school. So I I have a GED. That's all I have. I don't have a formal education. But when I dropped out of school and became a teenage mom, um, it really kind of 
woke me up. I went through a whole year of trying to ensure that I wanted to look at my own life. I hated living in poverty. I hated not having a father for my daughter. And I was involved in, I tell the full story in Lost Girl with a pretty bad person who almost killed me. I call him the baby daddy. I saw he, my he, life. He, there was an attempt on your life, right? Yes, there was. Yeah, he was a really bad uh, drug dealer uh, here in Austin and it was pretty known for his crime. And and, you know, I was stuck in this relationship. I met him when I was 16, again, got pregnant at 17. And here I was living in abject poverty, stuck in this toxic relationship, being abused. And, you know, I just didn't understand my value. And my poor mother, as much as she tried to shepherd me along, she had her own mess that she was dealing with. And so, you know, we kind I kind of just wandered my way through life, John. My mother actually ended up taking my daughter away from me because I, I was out of control in terms of my own bad choices. And she raised her for the first year. So here I was repeating that generational cycle, right? And then at age 19, I attended a church service. And in a couple of months before I went to that church service, I had had several um, pretty scary, close to death type moments in my own life and had a wake up call, you know, at age 19. And two months later, I'm in the service with my mom, who's trying to get me to, you know, stop doing drugs and come back and take care of my daughter. And there were a lot of events that led to that. I tell the full story in Lots Girl, but one of the big events was that baby daddy, horrible person that I was involved in that almost killed me, got put away in prison and he got ripped out of my life. So the negative influence that was there, um, you know, was able to get out of my life. My mom later told me she was praying he would, you know, get busted and he did. But I went to church and John, it was one way. In- that's one way to free you up. Yeah, for sure. I went to church and in that church encounter, you talked early about feeling the unconditional love of God when you had your accident. For those of you that know his, your John story, I literally was showered that moment in the state of my rebellion, in the state of my addiction, in the state of my mess. I literally, the presence of the Lord literally engulfed me. And I just said, I give, you know, I. Rebecca, was this happening? Because I can just picture you in the service and you're sitting there. Now, was this happening as you're sitting there or did you decide to come forward and this was happening as you were praying? No, actually, I was in the back of the church with the drugs in my purse, with my party outfit on. I told my mom I was coming for one hour. She went to the front and stood in proxy for me when the minister called out the uh, people between the ages of 18 to 21. It was a pretty big service. And he was every night he was kind of doing groups of people. And she went and stood up and she stood in line and he prayed over her. And my thing was like, why are you standing in line? Because you're not 18 to 21. But she told me later on, she said she told God in that moment, God, my daughter is in the back of the church. She's spinning out of control. I know that I've lost her and I and I can't do anything to help her. Please reach her right now before she destroys her life. And so my mom had been praying for me because even though she had her dysfunctional mess, she was still a believer, John. She still, you know, read the Bible and she still, um, you know, was involved in church and was a minister. And so she still was praying for me. And that's the power of a praying mom over my life. And that night, it was like a complete and total supernatural encounter. And I could not do anything but surrender. It was, I felt like I had made a mess of my life. And that night, John, I said to God in the back of that church, I didn't even go up front. I said it in the back. God, I am a mess. I've done nothing with my life. I'm complete dysfunction. I'm headed, you know, on a path. There were two purposes in my life. It was death or prison. And I said, I give you my life, you know, forgive me. And 
I want a better future for my daughter. I want a father for her. I want, you know, I, I want to go back to school. I want to get out of poverty. I just, I need your help because I'm a mess. And God encountered me in such an incredible way. You know, my mother, of course, you know, saw me in the back bawling my eyes out and came back there and we reconciled and we started our path down healing in our relationship, which took, by the way, about five or six years of forgiveness and counseling. But I I started to forgive her. You know, I had held so much anger and resentment against her for hurting us when we were young that I could never let that go. And that was destroying my heart. It was darkening my heart and making me as a young adult, make some really poor choices, you know? So I, John, I gave my heart to God and I joined a little bitty inner city church in Austin where I met my husband, who's 10 years older than I am. He was doing youth outreach with the gangs in East Austin, who I knew, and I had grown up in East Austin. So we started our path together. I went to Bible school, went back to school and got my GED. I started learning who God's word said about who I was, started getting mentors around me that were positive influences that believed in me. I went back to school and actually my first success was getting off a welfare, John. I landed a job for a woman by the name of Ann Richards here in Austin, who was the treasurer running for governor at the time. Oh, yes. I remember Ann Richards. She was a dynamo. How's that? She was a fireball. I'll tell you, I really, John, it was the first time in my life I had grown up in a Hispanic, traditional poverty, Hispanic you know, your purpose as a woman was barefoot pregnant. You know, there was no focus on education in my home. And and a lot of Hispanic homes have wonderful parents that encourage their education. In my home, it wasn't present. So, you know, all I knew is I could be a secretary or I could be a cocktail waitress or, you know, try to, you know, figure out a path forward. But Anne was the first woman in power, John, that I saw in my career ever. And she was a fireball. And I enrolled in the welfare to work program. I got off of welfare. I was her receptionist. And John, that was the first and the last job I ever interviewed for. Every single boss at the political level that I had, the next boss was a woman by the name of Kay Bailey Hutchison, who came in. I worked for Kay. Then the next boss was George W. Bush. And so I had women and mentors in my life that believed in me, that sent me to school, that gave me an opportunity and mentored me and promoted me. And I worked my way up from that receptionist job in 1989 to running uh, HR for Governor Bush in 2001. Of course, he was elected to president. But for six years, from 1995 to 2001, I ran HR for him. And we went back to school, to the LBJ School of Public Affairs and got some training and you know, became better at my craft, but really worked hard at the same time, John, that I was working my career up in government with strong mentors and people that believed in me. I had met my husband. We got married. He adopted my daughter. And, you know, the whole story is in Lost Girl. But God put me on a trajectory that I could not plan for myself. If I had planned it perfectly, I could not have planned. All no, and I want to share with people because, you know, you went, I think, were you an SES at Treasury, Rebecca? I was. Yeah, I was after I left the White House. I was a commission officer at the White House first. I did personnel for President Bush because that's what I did here in Texas. And then after my first two years in the White House, he appointed me over to Treasury and I was the chief human capital officer at Treasury. And I want everybody out there just to put that in context. SES stands for Senior Executive Service. It is a civilian equivalent, if you think of the armed forces, of somebody who would have the same responsibilities as either a very senior colonel or a brigadier general, right? A one-star general. And that's where I'm thinking of you back and standing in the church with the drugs in your purse yeah. <laughs> on welfare, 
I would love for you to share that process of not only forgiveness, but what did it take for you to shed those things in your identity? Because here, here's what happens is life, there's so much, you know, our, our identity, our self-identity, it is formed. Every single one of us, everybody listening, it's formed through all of our experiences, those things that are said to us. You know, the choices that we make, watching your mom leave, your dad not being around, um, having a steady home, and then you're, you know, pulled away. And right. So our own experiences, it's also formed from what people say to us. Like, hey, you need to be barefoot in the home. You can't do this. How would you ever expect to get off a of welfare? Whatever has been said. And then here's the other thing, too, is when we have that place of identity, I think the other thing, too, about our identity that is kind of insidious, it's what we think other people think about us. Indeed. Right? I'm this young, single Latina in Texas, and somebody maybe looks at you and turns away, and you, regardless of whether it's true or not, but we create a narrative. And then all of a sudden, that narrative might reinforce something in us that is a paradigm that is not from God and not helping us. And I love that you said, hey, it was a process. It was this process of healing and forgiveness. And it took people being part of your life to help you with it was, you know, years, five years. Other people out there, other women, other men who really have an identity that's that the world has just, you know, thrown into the ditch. Yes. What advice would you give to them as they're trying to walk toward getting to meet the person that God made versus the person that they see in the mirror. Listen, John, my biggest obstacle in the way was me. I did not understand my value. I did not understand my identity. I didn't think that I had a place. I'm a high school dropout, ex-drug addict, teen mom with no future. So the first thing I had to do is I had to learn about- And that was the story you were telling yourself too, probably, right? And that's the story. I had a learning disability when I was little. I was a horrible student. I made D's. If I could get a C, I was lucky. You know, I had a memory retention problem. I think all of that stemmed from my trauma. So I could tell myself as a 19, 20, 21 year old, well, I was abused. I have a memory problem. I did drugs. Or I could say, I'm going to, first of all, own my issues. I'm going to own the fact that I was irresponsible from the age of 13 on. I, and granted, you know, whatever environment created me, whatever. You can, be, you, you can choose to be a product of your environment, or you can actually choose to drive the outcome of what your environment is. And so the first thing I had to do as a 19, 20, 21-year-old was own my issues and embrace my own desire for that transformation at the level, John, of doing whatever it's necessary to heal. And we know that the only deity that can heal is God. I mean, we can heal ourselves through the power of God, and we can certainly take the steps to go to counseling and to deal with unforgiveness. But God's love and God's power moves beyond. I recently brought a message at a church called Embracing God's Supernatural Power and Favor. In order for us to embrace transformation of ourselves, we've got to own our stuff. We've got to embrace God's scriptures and what God says about who we are. And then we have to take the tactical steps to walk the healing out, right? So I went to counseling. I got around two or three other women and one man who could mentor me, who knew more than I knew, who had been in the journey way beyond me. And I listened and I watched and I observed and then I changed behavior. 
you know, changing my thinking. I had very toxic thinking. And uh, there's a great book by Dr. Caroline Leaf that I've literally lived by, Think, Learn, Succeed. She talks about literally changing toxic thinking and uh, decoupling those triggers in your toxic thinking. We all know the Bible says that, you know, that our thoughts are very powerful and that we should be renewing our minds. So, you know, there are practical things that I had to do to get help. And for me, it was not a two or three year transformation. It's been a lifelong transformation, John, but it started in the first five years of my journey, marrying my husband, who's 10 years older and more mature and had was a very strong strength to believe in me to say, Hey, Rebecca, I know you don't think you deserve to have that job, but you know, you're a hard worker. Like you can do this and constantly getting that encouragement from people I don't know about you, but, you know, I'm a product of my relationships and my the people that I've surrounded myself with. I was a product of the negativity of that early on as a young adult. And now I'm a product of success because I've had tremendous people in my life that have believed in me and that have helped me along the journey. None of us make it alone. Well, thank you for sharing that. And that, you know, as you did this journey and got that first job, it sounds like the mindset that you brought in with you was like one of gratitude and I'm going to work hard. I'm just telling you, like, I've hired a lot of people. And I've had some people with amazing backstories, you know, similar to yours. And what allowed you, though, to show up in a way that created so much, such healthy relationships and so much value to those around you that then, like you said, you never had to interview another job the rest of your life because people wanted to help you because you were just all in and you were helping them because there's something in there that I think we need to learn from. Yeah, absolutely. And so for me, it was about working hard and applying basic godly biblical principles to my everyday journey. Right. So I'll give you an example. President Bush is the one that told the chief of staff who was my mentor, Clay Johnson, President Bush, when he was governor Bush, and he had just won the recount, if you recall, Um, he said, what about Rebecca coming to DC with us? When I found out, John, that it was the president's idea, I didn't even know the president knew I existed. I was like an HR director. He had Carl Rove and Karen Hughes and all these power people behind him. He had 260 gubernatorial staff members. I didn't even know he knew my name, much less, you know, the fact that he would know my talent, right? And when my mentor boss said, well, yeah, she'd be a good addition to the team. I'll ask her if she wants to come. I was blown away by that. And so somewhere along the way, and later on in my journey, I asked my boss, Clay Johnson, and he's in the book quite a bit because he's been one of my biggest mentors and champions. He's the one that gave me access to the Oval Office and gave me my commissioning to be a part of the commission staff of the White House. And, you know, God uses people to help you, right? But I remember asking him, Clay, what was it? What was it that you saw in me? that made that trigger to say, I think I want to work with her and I want to give her a chance. He said to me, he said, Rebecca, you were hungry and you had such drive to do the right thing and work hard. And everything you did, you put everything into it. You did it well. It was like, he calls it a results driven nature and a leadership that's displayed even in the smallest of tasks, whether it was standing at the copier early on in my career to make you know, 50 copies for a board meeting or whether it's volunteering to lead an initiative when I knew nothing about it, whatever I wanted to do, I wanted to learn it. I had this insatiable desire to learn and to show myself approved in front of my superiors. 
not because I was trying to one up anybody, but because I wanted to be successful, John. I wanted to get off of welfare. I wanted to have six figure income. I wanted to be independently you know, in a position where I could give back to the community now through our nonprofit work that we do. I Each step along the way, I would say each five to 10 year period of my life, I've really driven the charge and owning my own future and then working really hard to accomplish it. But also knowing when to ask for help and raising your hand to the right people to say, hey, you know, I'd like to learn that new skill. Will you give me a chance at that job? I'd like that job. And now I'm in a position and have been for 15 years of hiring people. And I look for those innate skills and talent and people that I hire. Okay, so if I was a young woman or man and, you know, coming into a place and I said, okay, Rebecca, would you be my mentor? What I'm hearing is, right, hey, have a positive attitude, work hard, add value, What would the conversation that you would have with me when I'm like, okay, all of a sudden something just triggered all that victim mentality to pour back into my head or that the doubt that, you know, I actually can create this kind of life. I'm guessing there's times where as you're pulling away from those roots, right, that they tried to kind of grab hold of you again. Is that the case? Oh, absolutely. I'm mentoring a young lady right now who's a single mom, and I've been mentoring her for a few months. We just literally just had our session this week, and she said to me, in just three months of our sessions, I've literally revolutionized the way I think about myself. Mm. So traditional, you know, her husband left her for another woman. She got stuck with two kids. She was in poverty. When I met her, John, I saw, I met her after I spoke at an event. I came down to meet some of the women that were there, and she came up to me in tears saying, you have just described my life. I have no value. I need help. And so I took her under my wing. And I'll tell you what I do with my own victim mentality. And there are times where either when I face a failure or I have a really bad loss, we just had a big, big loss on a contract that we worked really hard for. And it was a sucker punch. And I started to think, well, what did we do wrong? You know, maybe it's something I did, or maybe it's something the PM did, or, you know, trying to figure out, you know, that kind of mindset. And I, I had to recalibrate myself to say, wait a minute, we've worked hard. We are excellent at everything we do. And yes, we're going to do a lessons learned, but we will move on. Like that loss is not going to stop us. And so it's really changing my mind and looking at the way tragedy losses, issues happen in life and being the driver of how I'm managing that emotion and not allowing that emotion to take over negatively and to impact my daily life. And it's all through you know, through knowing the scripture, it's through getting into prayer or meditation. It's through making a phone call to someone you trust to say, hey, I'm really struggling right now. I've got depression. I feel really sad. I'm going through a situation right now. And I'll just be transparent with your listeners with my twin brother. He's back into mental illness again, and he's severely mentally ill. He's my twin. I love him. I'm tragically affected by that. I've tried to help him. And it's hard because he's just in the state. I'm trying to not to let that get me down and sad and think, is there a way I can help him? And maybe I haven't done enough. I just have to recalibrate and remember that he's God's child. God loves him. He's an adult. He's a 53 year old man. And he's going to have to take the steps for himself to get help because I can't help him anymore. You know, there are certain things in life that as a leader, you have to embrace and you either have to recalibrate your thought process and then your emotions and your heart and then your outcome to just move forward. And I call it failing forward. John Maxwell has a great book called Failing Forward. I figure out how to fail forward in life in situations or issues and not stay a victim uh, because I do have a past victim mindset. 
And it's easy for me to go the victim. I have to remind myself that I'm a victor and not a victim and really speak it out, but also walk it out in my daily living. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And have you read uh, Mindset by Carol Dweck, Rebecca? No, no, I haven't. I'll have to. Oh, it's phenomenal. It's about the difference of a fixed mindset, which is really kind of rooted in that not taking personal responsibility or kind of that victim mentality in a growth mindset. Mm. Honestly, because I struggled with a lot of those very similar things. It was transformational for me. But what, here's one of the things you said, though, or what, here's what I heard. As you're talking about that, at these different points when it was a struggle or kind of that old, those old mindsets had, you know, some gravity, they were pulling you back in. You found somebody to talk to, right? Somebody to share with, like this young woman reached out to you and she had, you had somebody who's been there before and say, okay, I get it. Yes. Right. I'm not going to sympathize, but I can empathize, but here's how we're going to address this. And in that, you know, these young 20 somethings coming into the workforce, right? 20 to 30. And a lot of people, there's been a lot of stuff going on, right? How do you go in today's world, which is largely still kind of disconnected, you know, from a lot of personal interactions and being at conferences and being around the office and of finding a good mentor for them? Well, and you know, we're used to mentors in the traditional sense of a mentor meeting with you on a regular basis. I have leveraged my mentors over the years through podcasts. I mean, we have this great big internet. I listen a lot to Dr. Caroline Leaf. She's amazing. Yeah, she's amazing. She's literally, I'm addicted to her podcast. So I would say leverage mentors, whether it's uplifting podcasts, you know, podcasts regarding career changes, if you're looking to make a career change. There's so much content out there, John, right now on the internet, and some of it can be bad, right? So be careful about what you listen to. But, you know, there could be people that you look up to. I've got probably four or five women in my sphere of influence that I may not see every day, but I look up to them. I watch them. I look at what they put out in terms of their blogs. I take in their content. I, If I have a question, I'll call and ask them, hey, listen, I'm thinking about, you know, going into this new area of the business. What do you think? You know, it's being humble enough in a position where you're constantly in a state of learning and acquiring knowledge, but also asking for help. You know, I have... Here I am, 53 years old. I have, you know, a multi-million dollar company. I've been married 31 years. I have grandchildren, children. I have not arrived. I'm still in a constant state of asking for help and learning and open, right? Open to change and shift and talk about the shift in the world that we've had the last two years. You know, we've got to recalibrate how we think. We've got to recalibrate what we think about all the negative media going on. Are we going to let that stuff in our spirit and affect our daily life? Or are we going to push it out and focus on what we can control? It goes back to that serenity prayer (laughs) that is basic. You know, I love that point. You know, it's interesting because when I do a like a strategic problem solving workshop with a team and we're looking at actual a problem or a situation and honestly, 80% of the problems actually boil down to a bad relationship at work with somebody on another team with your boss. That is definitely part of it. When though we, when I break it out and I ask them that simple question, okay, let's list all the factors of what we're trying to do here that you can control and all the factors that you can't control. And when they actually start to see this and they realize, oh my gosh, all those things that I'm stressing about are things that I actually can't influence. Like, guess what? You might try to influence me, especially maybe you're married, right? My wife tries to influence me, but I'm going to do what I do. Right. 
but she can choose how she responds and vice versa. And in that we've also, we've been married now 32 years, right? We've had some good oh, times. Got one and bad year times. On me. <laughs> right. Yeah. We got married young. And I also have a son who's he's 22 with a four-year-old. So they got pregnant at 17 and not married. And so we, you know, we've walked with them through that. And so life is constantly throwing things at you, but I love what you said, right? What are those things that you can control? And those things that you can't control, put them up in prayer. Cause guess what? You know, Jesus said, you know, my yoke is light. Yes. Right. And he goes, you know, take my yoke upon you. That doesn't mean that he's going to give you more burden. What he's saying is, guess what folks, my burden is light. So I'm going to take your burden on me. I'm going to share it with you. I'm going to walk with you through this. And when you're yoked together, guess what? By being yoked together, it means you're walking on the path together. You're not going to run off into the ditch. You're not going to try to run so fast or work so hard. You get totally burned out and fried and, and you're useless to yourself and others. And that's what I found as I've been on the, a journey also, Rebecca, is really understanding God so that we're in a relationship. Like, yeah. how do you really trust somebody who you don't know? Right. I call it relationship versus religion, because religion, in the case of my mother, it can kill. You know, it, she was religious, but she in relationship is a different thing. John, I've been on this reset challenge um, and your listeners can learn more on RebeccaContreras.com. We've been doing this reset challenge for seven weeks and it's about recalibrating in 2022. Reset emotions, reset your thinking, reset relationships, reset you. I call it 15 minutes of reset. And the reason that I'm doing that for my own life and bringing, you know, my subscribers on is I want people to understand that I don't care how old you are. I don't care how young you are. I don't care where you are in your career and your journey. We all need a reset. We all need to evaluate where we are today, where we want to go tomorrow and how that aligns with our behavior and what we're doing in our everyday life. Most of your listeners I know are leaders and managers. They're in management. And sometimes as managers and leaders, we get pulled a million directions. Well, guess what? If we don't learn to reset and we don't learn to recalibrate and figure out what our path forward is with those strategic things that we're going to invest our time into that add value. And I always say, if that doesn't add value to the bottom line, bottom line is not only money. Bottom line can be your own growth. It can be your emotional health. It can be your family's health. You know, you got to shake it off and reset and get rid of some stuff that's not adding value. And so I'm a firm believer that doing it as a believer with God in relationship with his word, in relationship with prayer and meditation and worship, it's a recipe for success, John. One story I have to share with you and your listeners that is in, in the book is you can't always control things. So I have my clearance story of how I met made top secret clearances in the book. And it's a pretty hairy story because I was on the edge. <laughs> of, Getting you your know, clearance or not when they did the background check. Yeah, yeah. When they did the background check, because, you know, I had a lot of indiscretions as a young adult and as a teen. And I'll let the readers read the full story. It's pretty hairy. But I remember walking into the Oval Office after I got my clearance. And there was a God intervention there, too, by the way. It's a miracle. And I remember the president winking at me and saying, uh, I hear you're quite the black sheep, too. And, you know, we laughed it off. But he recently wrote me a note, John, I got it two weeks ago, and he actually, somebody gave him my book, I don't know who did, uh, but he wrote me a personal note, and he said, I just read Lost Girl, and I want you to know, I knew you had been through some stuff, but I didn't realize the depth of all of the challenges you faced, and 
congratulations on overcoming them and how proud he was. And I thought, you know, even the president of the United States, you know, can relate to people having issues. <laughs> and it was a God miracle that I even got to work in the White House and that I even got to serve a president. And, you know, I don't take any of that for granted, John. In life, things happen. Your listeners, I know stuff is, they're hurting, there's pain, there's trauma. You know, we just have to move forward and take the right steps to own our own transformation and our own issues for that change. And I'm just glad to be able to share the story with you today. Well, what a blessing. And I'm just thinking about the welfare to work. The first job, what was your title? Was it an assistant admin? Receptionist. I was Ann Richards receptionist. Okay. I want you guys to just take that in. (laughs) Right. Think about this. Because, you know, here's what Rebecca talked about. With everything that she had lived and was going through at that point, she showed up as a receptionist and did the best job that she knew how to do as a receptionist and then kept looking to the future without being um discon you were i would almost call it uh what do you call it it was a healthy discontent like i'm going to do my best now yeah but i'm not going to settle for exactly this area right and yeah. i'm going to do it with excellence i'm going to reach out to mentors i'm going to reach up to my god and I'm going to reach out to others. I'm going to do the hard work to reconnect to who God made me to be. And I'm going to learn how to love and forgive when it's sometimes very difficult. Exactly. And that's a process. And in doing that, God just kept walking you on a path that you would have never in a million years ever guessed when you got that first notification that, hey, you know what? We got you an interview as part of this program. Unbelievable. Yeah. And you're going down to the Capitol building. You're going, you were probably freaking out, weren't you? Yeah. I'm driving had, down to the Capitol been... building. This young, I can just see this young woman because you got a picture of your book of you in the old days with your party outfit on and your big hair. And <laughs> I, <laughs> I, can just, I can just picture it, man. What a beautiful story of letting God or trusting God to heal you to show you that beautiful beloved daughter that he sees when he looks at you, but then having the courage to step into that version of yourself, the version of yourself that you were created to be, not the one the enemy wanted you to accept. Right. Or more so to create the version of myself that I wanted to be right. Cause sometimes God wants us to take ownership over creating, whether it's taking a course or whether it's, you know, working harder, whether it's trying to, acquire, um, you know, money to, to save for a particular program. I mean, God's not going to snap his finger and say, oh, here's who I need you to be. Go be it. He wants you to take ownership of your future and chart that path forward. So everybody um, connect with Rebecca. Her website is Rebecca Contreras, which is C-O-N-T-R-E-R-A-S.com. And the book, you guys can find it, uh, Lost Girl, from her website. It's on. I'm sure it's on all the booksellers, Amazon. The nice thing, too, is you guys on Rebecca's website, if you want to hear her speak, she has a calendar of past events that she's been at, upcoming events that she has, if you want to get there, or you want to have Rebecca to come in and speak to your group. Because you know what? We have been talking from a really deep, you know, Christ-centered perspective, What I know in Rebecca, a gift God has given you is to communicate this message in a way that the corporate world, the secular world can hear it and digest it 
and the truth is there and it just filters into people's lives and it is powerful. So Rebecca, I got to tell you, thank you. Oh my goodness. Totally bless me today. I'm already thinking of dozens of people that are popping into my head. As soon as this comes out live, I'm going to forward to you personally and say, you need to hear Rebecca's story. I know it's going to give them hope. It's going to give them life. It's going to give them courage to take that next step. And, you know, folks listening out there right now, I would guess somebody just popped into your head as I said that. As you were listening to Rebecca, just take this, forward it to just one person to hear this, because you know what? The world needs to hear the testimony of what God has done in this world through Rebecca, because he's doing it for all of us. Rebecca is not special. Nope. And the fact that we are all equally as special and loved. I just want to be clear about that. Yeah, and so yeah. just, hey, as we wrap up, because we got to wrap up, unfortunately, but any just final thought to leave with everybody, Rebecca? No, John, thank you for having me. And I just love what you're doing. Thank you. And God bless you for your leadership in the imprint that you're leaving. And just, you know, just be encouraged. Listen, we serve a big God and it is a new year in 2022. We can start over and trailblaze. And the one thing I will share with your listeners that has been transformative for me as a takeaway is, you know, give back and mentor someone, you know, volunteer. There are a lot of hurting people, John, right now. And it's important for us when we're successful to not forget and leave behind those that were like us or like us you know, and pay it forward and just take your time in 2022 to really give back to someone in need and invest in their life. Because you never know, they might be a little Rebecca out there that you can later uh, look up and see them be hugely successful because of the time you've taken. That is awesome. All right, with well my friend, go keep knocking them alive. And I know uh, God has even more amazing things in store for you as you, as you keep moving forward. So thank you. <laughs> 